0: we sing this, I pray that it be the true witness of our soul, that Christ may increase, that we may decrease, that his glory would be seen in this world, in his word, in our lives. I pray that you would fit us as your people as we come to the word, as we consider the truth that you have revealed here, and I pray in behalf of those who know not Christ, That you would make that clear to them and grant them the gift of faith, the eyes to see your truth and to embrace your saving grace, not by their human effort alone, but that human effort reflecting what you alone can do by your Spirit. And may you increase faith in this place today as we gather together here. We need you. We invite the Ministry of the Spirit, the conviction, the teaching and the transformation that can come as we consider your truth. Aid us to this end, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. I passed a sign on the front yard of a church building a few days ago. It read, "Faith is believing despite the facts. Faith is believing despite the facts. The point, apparently, is that there's no necessary connection between faith and reality. No organic union between faith and truth. So apparently this church wants the world to know that faith in God, faith in the Bible, could be faith in fantasy, faith in a myth. No particular connection to truth. Now, I don't know, maybe the message was posted by a well-meaning but rather dim-witted Christian. That's a possibility. But knowing the church's denomination, I suspect the sign said exactly what it meant to say. And so, if that is the case, they have it all wrong. Faith is the reality It is the truth that we believe and act upon despite what we see. Let's imagine a a factory setting and there's an assembly line of workers and the boss announces I'm leaving. I'll be back at noon. I expect you to have all the work done that you would typically have done by noon and then we'll retool and I'll come up with a different plan for the rest of the afternoon. I will be back at noon. Well, the boss leaves and the workers begin to talk together and they start putting some things together and they say, he's not, it's not coming back at all. I'm going to be gone for the rest of the day and in fact, there's going to be nobody really to hold us accountable for what we do or don't do and so let's just have a party. And they go to the store and they purchase some things and they're just enjoying the day together. There's a few other workers that are saying, I think the boss is coming back. I believe the truth of what this promise is saying, and we're going to keep working here and get our job done on the assembly line because we believe we're going to be held accountable for it, just as the boss said. There's a lot of temptation here. Join us. This is ridiculous that you would believe this promise. It's not connected to reality, so just join in with us and do what we want to do here. But they say, no, we're going to act now on the basis of what we believe the boss has said about the future. We'll be back at noon. And indeed, the boss returns at noon. Now, have those workers been acting upon a fantasy? that they've been following a myth, even though people were telling them that they were. No, they're acting now on the reality that is to come. They believe the word that has been spoken about, when no one can see, no one can really know if the boss will come back at noon. But they say, I'm going to trust that that's the case, and I'm going to act in line with that coming into being. So faith is believing in God's promised blessing upon those who trust the truth that he reveals about the future. Faith is living not based on what circumstances seem to dictate, not based on what the world or our flesh desires, but genuine Christian faith lives sight unseen upon the bedrock reality of what God has said. Believing His promise that we will one day stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Believing that one day every knee will bow before Him. Believing that there will be reward for our labors for Him. Faith then is not trust in a fantasy. It's not trust in a myth. It's not trusting despite the facts. Faith is trust in what we cannot see but it is trust in what is absolutely true, even though we can't see it yet. Without such faith, the author of Hebrews exhorts us, we cannot please God. In fact, unbelief is at the heart of every sin that we commit. Unbelief is at the heart of every blessing that we forfeit in this life. Unbelief is at the core of every idol that we adore. It is unbelief that seals the doors of heaven against the unbeliever. This is the reality that God has revealed to us, and we trust it, sight unseen, but we trust that truth. In the mercy of God... We're blessed to enjoy the instructive counsel and the firm warning of Numbers chapter 14 to this end, where we do not find faith easy. We find it easy to listen to the workers that say there's no truth in it, it's just a myth. We find it easy to be pulled in and to have our faith challenged, and so I'm I'm so grateful for these chapters, as ugly as they are. But in his mercy, he's, he's given us these chapters, Numbers chapter 14. Remember in chapter 13, Israel encamped, is encamped on the southern border of the promised land. They've made their way from Egypt up to Kedish, and they are on the southern end of the land. And then spies are sent south to north through the land to discern its strengths, its weaknesses, if any, its productivity, to, to see what is there. And then those spies return in chapter 13 and bring back a report twofold. The land is wonderful, it's a good gift, but it is stacked against us. There are giants there, there are soldiers there, there are high, thick fortresses, walls of fortresses there? We can't do this. Chapter 13 verse 30 Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it for we are well able to overcome it in God's strength. Then the men who'd gone up with him, the other spy said we are not able to go up against the people. Notice this let's go up We can't go up. For they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. That is, we go in there, we're going to be eaten alive. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seem to to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seem to them. This is the report. Now as we come to chapter 14, that's the response of the spies. As we come now to chapter 14, we're going to find the response of the people. Who are they going to listen to? How are they going to respond? We find in this chapter unbelievable unbelief israel and her leaders contend with one and over, one another over god's will in the first 12 verses then all the congregation verse 1 raised a loud cry and the people wept that night how do they respond to this report here it is the people of israel sound off we cannot obey god the nation lifts its collective voice weeping and wailing in rebellious unbelief Says that night, the Hebrew is through that night. So throughout the night, there's this wailing, this weeping, this self pity. And in the morning, their rebellious weeping turns to grumbling, verse 2. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And that's just unbelievable. It's audacious in light of what we have seen in the text thus far. We think of Miriam's rebellion, God's judgment against her, and God's vindication of Moses, just in chapter 12, while they've been here in this wilderness. We witness again the sheer irrationality of sin as they lash out against Moses and Aaron. They howl. Their complaint, continuing in verse 2, as the whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. What are they doing? They stare God's blessing in the eye. After this long, arduous journey through the Red Sea to Mount Sinai, through the wilderness, they're poised now on the doorstep of God's blessing, and all they can do is look back in fear. (coughs) Suddenly, everything in the rearview mirror looks so much better than where they stand. It's chilling. Death in Egypt. Death in the wilderness, that's better than this. That's better than the land of God's blessing. What's the reality behind it all? What's the truth that's there? It's easy for us to see from our perspective, but we need to see it easily. The truth is that God has given them this land. It's theirs. They will go in. They will conquer. God will bring this about. He's been up to this, well, forever, but for 400 years at least in his conversations with his people. This is going to happen. That's the truth. But they reject that truth and embrace the fantasy that God's way is foolish, God's way is harmful to us. It's not a good way. Spiritual myopathy as they look forward, blind to what's in front. Scrubbed memories as they look backward, and utter rebellion reigning in their hearts. This is unbelief and all of its ugliness. Now the rebellion grows even bolder, having lashed out at Moses and Aaron. They lash out at God himself, verse 3. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader to go back to Egypt. There's a mutiny here. We're not going to walk our families into this slaughter. We can't do this. What is God thinking? We'll just choose our own leader and do what we know is better than God's plan. We notice their bitter accusation here. God delivers us from Egyptian slavery and certain death at the Red Sea, and he has done that in order to kill us. That's what he's up to here. He's brought us here to this place to slaughter us. It's absolutely unbelievable. And yet, don't we find ourselves here When we think of the deliverance of Israel and the grumbling complaint against God's way, it's really not very far from our setting where we have the deliverance of Christ crucified and risen and the assurance and the security of an eternal home with him and we grumble against God's ways. Christ's death has delivered us from the bondage of sin. It has secured our eternal redemption, and yet we doubt his love. He's brought us through all of that, and yet what about this circumstance, this difficulty? We doubt his love. We reject his counsel. I really don't believe he has my best interest in view. We may not want to articulate it that way, but sometimes we get taken down to our knees in fear and frustration, and we say, I know that God loves his people, I know that God saves his people, I know that he has this massive redemptive plan, but he's forgotten about me. Somehow I slipped off the page of his interest. And we show the same type of unbelievable unbelief. We can see it as we look at them. We see the folly of their proposal. What's going to happen if Israel gets a leader to take them back to Egypt? I mean, it's not going to be one week and they're going to be caved into grumbling once again. In fact, there'll probably be a civil war that breaks out between those who are saying now in the middle of the wilderness, we want to go back and try that promised land thing again. And others say, no, we've got to go back to Egypt. Remember those big people there in big cities? And they would probably have ended up killing each other in the wilderness. And even if not, they'd all been really unhappy campers eating all that manna again. It was no proposal at all. It's just an outright rebellion. The leaders of Israel will push back now in verses 5 and following. We must obey God, they say. And Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. They don't fall on their faces to plead for Israel's mercy out of the fear of man. I think they're falling on their faces to plead for God's mercy, fearing Him. Chapter 11, verse 3. Chapter 11, verse 33. Chapter 12, verse 10. Three judgments by God because of unbelief. And now they're saying, they fall on their faces saying, here, this is worse yet. We have come to the edge of the promised land and we are saying God is not good They fall on their faces pleading the mercies of God. They tear their clothes, a common symbol of deep distress and remorse, often traditional at times of death and mourning. They tear their robes in anguish at this unbelief. Verse 7, and they said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, He will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Do you see it? Do you see it there? They plead with Israel to act in faith on the reality that God will fulfill his promises. You don't see it when you're looking at those walls. You don't see it when you're looking at those giants, but it will be. He has said it, he will fulfill it. So let me ask let us ask of them who's in fantasy land now? Who's believing a myth now? It's not Joshua and Caleb. No one can see how Israel's armies are going to defeat the Canaanite armies. But Joseph and Caleb bank everything on God's promise. He will be there. He will defeat these armies. Not because Israel will develop nuclear weapons overnight. But because God is God. And His word is true. He can be trusted to keep His promises. And so Joshua and Caleb plead with Israel in verse 9. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. They're bread for us. That is, remember what they said? Everybody who goes into this land, they'll be devoured. We will be food for these people. And they're saying, no, they're going to be bread for us. We will eat them. We seem like grasshoppers to them, but they are actually bread for us. Their protection has been removed. The Hebrew word is their shadow. The beautiful concept, the shadow of God's providence that has permitted these nations to live in their rebellion against Him over these centuries, has now been removed. And they are under the bright sun of His judgment. Fear God. These men say you're living by sight. You're permitting the fear of man to overwhelm your trust in God's promises. You are permitting unbelief to crush your future blessing. Let me read that again. And I just ask you to say, ask yourself, is this perhaps the message of the Spirit to you? The very same message. Hear it. Let's not think about it now of this direction to Israel, but to us. You are living by sight. You are permitting the fear of man to overwhelm your trust in God's promises. You are permitting unbelief to crush your future blessing. Could that be us? Of course it could. And of course on some level it is. Is the Spirit of God speaking the same message to us? Nothing, however, as commentator Bush puts it, nothing, however, is so hateful to a resolute sinner as good counsel. And so, verse 10, what do they do? Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. We can only conclude that they would have killed their leaders, but God has, at this point, heard enough. Verse 10, but the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me and how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. Israel's fantasy is that there's no God they're they're like functional atheists here having this conversation as if God doesn't hear it and doesn't see it God comes and shows up the truth is that he's heard every word he's seen every deed and he's read every motive Israel's fearing man but they must now face the living God God and Moses have had this conversation before, step aside, I am going to take this nation out and start over. It's not a promise, of course, we understand it that way, all things being equal, as things stand, this is my intention. But this has taken place back in chapter 32, you remember Israel and that sensual orgy at the foot of Mount Sinai, God proposes to wipe out the nation and Moses intercedes. And he intercedes in prayer saying, this will not end well for the glory of your name. Do not start a nation with me. Preserve this people that you have promised to protect and guide. So then as now, it's a statement of what God intends if things stand as they are. And we see here, we witness here the hot anger of the Lord in light of Israel's ridiculous, rebellious unbelief. And we, in our Western individualized setting, we in our modern world, need to probably stop here and come to terms with this. An angry God who proposes to wipe out a people. Are we okay with that God? Do we have a problem with that God? We must learn to balance God's attributes properly, not pit them against each other as so many do. We cannot reason, God is love, and I like that God. But I can't square the loving God with a God who judges and disciplines His people. A loving God who responds with holy anger. I can't can't reconcile that. What we must say then in light of Scripture is that you then cannot square your view of God with reality. And that's a problem for you. It really is. We need to see God for who He is. And by the way, take a few moments and breathe. There's more to come. But we need to see God as He's revealed in Scripture, not pass by these moments to see Him in His holy anger and say, that's not the God I know. Is the God who is. We can take heart, but God fairly baits Moses here, and Moses responds faithfully and humbly. So now in this next segment, he contends with God for His glory and Israel's pardon. We've seen the kind of debate, the argument between the leaders of Israel and the people of Israel, and now we see, secondly, Moses contending for God and his glory as he would pardon Israel. Verse 13, But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it. If you destroy Israel, the Egyptians will hear of it. For you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land, They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of His people, for you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. The Canaanites know this. The Egyptians know this. The Egyptians knew all about what was going on with Israel right now. And ruined Egypt to the south is watching what God will do to Canaan. Verse 15. Now, if you kill this people as one man, Moses continues to pray, then the nations who have heard your fame, the Canaanites, the Egyptians, they're going to say this. It is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give to them that he has killed them in the wilderness. What's Moses saying? God, if you judge your chosen people as we deserve, it will dim the glory of your reputation to the pagans. Do not tarnish your name that way. Now notice the phrase here, the word not able. Not able. Not able. We can compare that back to 13, 30, and 31, as we read it earlier. The spies insist that Israel is not able to take the land. Here, Moses is saying, people are going to conclude that of you, that you're not able to take the land. Here, I think, probably less a matter of God's not powerful enough. I think Egypt had that pretty well concluded, that he was. The Canaanites, we find later, are petrified of the Israelites. So, so I, don't, I don't think that it's you couldn't pull it off because you're not powerful enough. I think what he's saying is they are going to say you can't pull it off with this people. Your program fell apart. You couldn't keep your family in line. And therefore, God, you failed. That's what the nations are going to say. Now we notice here that Moses' concern is for what? His concern is with God's glory and with God's honor. And that is, in fact, a key component of prevailing prayer. May we learn to pray that way, that we pour out our prayers for the glory of God. I can tell you when we pass the line from simply pleading with Him to fix our life, and I I think He rejoices to hear those prayers in right context. But when we pass that line in our prayer life, where it moves beyond fix my life and it moves into glorify your name, we really enter into a glorious way of prayer. A way of prayer where we contend with God to do what he's actually doing in this world. To magnify his name and I join my prayers to this project how many prayers do we offer? What percentage of our prayer life is given over to God? Magnify your name in that person's life. Glorify your name in this situation. Consider what will happen to your reputation if this doesn't take place. And to plead with God to honor His name. That's where Moses is in all of these intercessory prayers. He forgets about himself. He forgets what's at stake for him personally. He'll be the head of a new nation. He'd be a really old head, but he could get it started. And his name would go down in history like Abraham's name. The man of faith, the man of promise, the head of the nation. He doesn't even bring that up. He says, God, your name. That's what's all important here. Do we pray this way? Moses contends with God for his glory for his reputation among the nations. So he prays here in verse 15, Now if you kill this people as one man, then the nations will have heard your fame and will say, It is because the Lord was not able. So he killed them in the wilderness. Verses 17 and 18, Moses secondly contends for God's fidelity to his own word. And now please let the power of the Lord, as great as you have promised, saying, Let the power of the Lord be great, as you have promised, saying, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. That's skillful prayer. What he's doing there is taking God's own words and holding him accountable to them in a very respectful, honoring way. But these are the words of the Lord about who He is. And remember, we look at God in His anger. We need not to dismiss that from the pages of Scripture. But here also we see God in His steadfast love, in His forgiveness. Yet, Moses, as God had revealed about himself, he's not going to be unjust. He doesn't forgive unjustly. He doesn't just forgive and forget. There is justice with God, and yet, God, you are at the core of your being, a God of steadfast, loyal love. Act upon the glory of your name. Remember this and show it to us in the way that you respond in our sin. quick time out here again for us from a western perspective and in our modern world many love to say that they reject the god of the old testament because he's an angry bitter mean god who beats people up and that's all that's there that's not all that's there god is infinitely complex So we acknowledge that. We understand that. We'll never fully understand him. But we're not going to help God out and we're not going to help our faith out by dismissing aspects of who he is. But here we have both coming together in this same text. I will take this nation out in his holy anger he threatens. And yet he is a God of steadfast love who forgives iniquity and transgression. This is who he is. Sometimes that belief might have an effect upon us. May we know the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament and he is a God of severity and holiness and judgment and he is a God of steadfast love and grace and forgiveness. He's deep. Don't make him shallow. But here Moses pleads with God seeking to be loyal to his name and asking God to contend for his own name. Then thirdly, Moses contends for God's faithfulness to his saving purposes in verse 19. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. He tags into salvation history. Since we've left Egypt all along the path, you continue to forgive this people. You continue to pardon their sin. Do so now. Moses' prayer then taps into that salvation historical work of the Lord. And he asks that God would remain consistent with his loyalty to forgive his people. I wonder if we pray like that. Do we pray prayers... For those in rebellion against God? Do we intercede for sinners or do we just criticize? Moses went to work saying, God, you're a God of steadfast love and forgiveness. Forgive these rebels. And we see then in the third movement of this text that God pardons and punishes Israel. Verse 20. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. The text does not explain how a just God could pardon such blatant sin. Indeed, on some level, the Old Testament never fully answers that question. It gives means toward forgiveness, but it does not really ever spell out entirely how God is thoroughly just to forgive such sin. But we have here the early sketchings of God's redeeming grace, and we see the vital role of the intercessor. As a prophet and priest, Moses mediates between God and Israel. He advocates for Israel's pardon. And this is an important scene in redemption history, as it prepares us for the greater intercessor than Moses, for the one who is the greater Joshua, Savior to come, the Lord Jesus Christ. Israel does not deserve pardon. she deserves annihilation, yet Moses stands in between and pleads for her. In like manner, the Bible teaches us that all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way, and like Israel, we have disbelieved God. God commands husbands to love their wives. To remain sexually devoted to them. And we track our own way and break God's law. God commands children to obey and honor their parents. And children think there's a better way to fulfillment and happiness. Not God's way, my way. And they break God's law. God commands us not to steal not to use his name in vain, not to covet what belongs to others. And we think it's just too hard. I I don't want to live like that. I want to live the way I want to live. And we break God's law. God commands us to love him with all of our heart, to trust him that he will never leave us or forsake us. And we choose to doubt him, and we choose to question him. The thoughts run through our soul. I'm not sure God's trustworthy. Not with me. And we break his law. We're not better than Israel. We're really not. But what we can say, by the grace of God, is there is a better mediator. There is one, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has come between us and God, between the Father and between the sinner, and has paid the penalty of sin such that He has purchased pardon freely, fully, despite what we deserve. The answer then for us is to trust in His death and in His resurrection, to trust Him, to trust this unseen truth by faith that He has purified us from sin, that He has broken the bondage of sin, that He is delivering us from it, and that He will secure for us life eternal. That's our intercessor. And all the things the Old Testament didn't really answer are answered in Christ. We have the whole package now as we look at His redemptive work through His death and resurrection. So when we disbelieve, When we walk in unbelief, may we find in him our intercessor who pleads our case. We don't deserve it any more than Israel. But Jesus delivers it to those who trust him. In 21 through 23, God sentences Israel. So he's pardoned them, verse 20. But truly, I say, or truly, as I live, And as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice, none of them shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despise me shall see it. Pardon from guilt does not equal deliverance from consequences in God's world pardon from sin is never separated from justice so God does not simply forgive and forget as the righteous judge he must exact justice he must exact full payment and in our case that payment has fallen on Christ but in the context here before Christ Israel's punishment fits her crime. She had tested God ten times. Some people try to make that literal and they they find ten occasions that we find in the text. And maybe that's the case. Others take it figuratively and maybe as a parallel to the ten plagues of Egypt or the like. But at any rate, Israel begs for the wilderness. And she gets it. Israel rejects the promised land and she'll never see it. Not this generation. God sentences Israel and God exempts Caleb. Verse 24, But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went and his descendants shall possess it. He's trusting the truth and I will reward that. He trusts me and I will bless him richly. What a glorious day lies ahead for Caleb going to lose a lot of friends in the wilderness but one day he's going to enter into that land and secure the tract of land around hebron where these great blessings came and where this great fear was found that will be his track in the southern end someday in the future but then god now verse 25 sadly expels israel now, since the Amalekites and Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. This is where you want to be. This is where you go. So the spies have gone up the land. They've come back down. They've given their evil report. The nation has responded. And now it's time to head that direction south. Unbelief had deprived Israel of the thrill of conquest of the abundance of this land, of the beauty of verdant hills and lush valleys and lakes and rivers. They have the barren wilderness because they will not believe God at His word. Instead of those fields of grain and vineyards and orchards, instead of flocks and herds grazing on fertile fields, Israel will now eat manna in the wilderness, in the bush, in the sand, in this hard Scrabble place for another generation. And that's what unbelief does. It turns us to the darkness, it turns us to the wilderness. Brokering in fantasy and fiction, unbelief sacrifices the fruits of truth. Christian, let's know this God does not lead you into the valley of suffering. He does not call you to face difficult challenges in order to crush you. That's not what he's up to. Look at the cross. Look at what he has done for you in Christ. He's not in the business of taking you somewhere to crush you. He calls you to suffer and to serve for his glory, the glory of his name, and to produce the fruits of faith in your life. He calls us to suffer and to serve for the glory of his name. This is what God longed to do for Israel. He longed to pour out his rich blessing upon her. That's why we look at it and say it's unbelievable unbelief. It's so clear to see what God longs to do with his son Israel. They just won't believe him. They refuse to trust him. For us, on this side of the cross, our conquest is no physical land. But there is, for us, no less blessing waiting in the wings as we learn to trust God at his word. For us, the hostile environment is not walls and armies. For us, the hostile environment is a society that despises God's honor. A society that rejects God's truth and celebrates that rejection. We live in a society that ridicules His people in countless ways that tells us over and again, day after day, you don't matter. You are foolish. You believe despite the facts. But living in such a world, God calls us to take courage and to trust His truth. To live in faith. It takes such courage to believe God's word concerning sexuality in our day. It takes backbone of faith. It takes such courage to believe that life does not consist in the abundance of the things that we possess, but that God has called us to be generous and that that is a path to joy. It takes such courage to proclaim the lordship of Jesus Christ and to call sinners to repent and trust in the gospel, to say to a world that wants to run its own life, you must submit your soul to the Lord Jesus Christ. It takes this kind of courage to live as citizens of a heavenly kingdom where priorities and values are so radically different from any earthly kingdom. But let us not forget that such courage rests not in ourselves and never on myth and fantasy. Living faith trusts God's revealed truth and acts upon it despite what we presently see. It says in a modern day parable like we have in the parables of Christ, he's coming again. He's coming back. The day of accountability will come. We will enter into His presence and His truth is the path to fruitfulness and joy and life now and forever. In light of Israel's unbelief, in light of their unbelievable unbelief in this passage, may God grant us the kind of faith that conquers and prospers our souls until that day when believer think of that day when the faith becomes sight that day when we're gonna blow away the experience of Caleb who had to wait 40 years to say this is it this is God's word this is the fulfillment of his promise this is my Hebron region we will stand in the presence of the Lord And in the faith that we had in this life, we will bow the knee and say with joy unspeakable and full of glory, you are my Lord and Savior. Let's help each other in faith until that faith is sight by His grace. Father, aid us to this end. These... Passages of failure remind us of our own, but they also encourage our hearts to take hope. We get beaten down day after day by those who mock our faith and tell us that we are just listening to myths and lies and fantasies to help us cope with life, which will simply end and dissipate into nothingness. Help us to stand. May we, like Caleb, may we, like Joshua of old, trust your word and live in its light. Open each of our eyes, wherever we are with you, open them to the faith that we must have, that we are privileged to have in your word, in your promises concerning what we don't see. And may we trust it with all our heart and help each other to trust it as we exhort one another day by day, lest we fall from the faith, lest we prove unfaithful to you. But we praise you here and now in this prayer of praise that you always remain faithful to your people. We thank you that you're a God of wrath, that that wrath has served justice fully in the death of Christ. And we praise you that you are God of mercy forgiving grace and steadfast love in this we trust deepen that faith in us now nurture those roots water that soil that we might walk in faith until the faith is sight through jesus we pray praise god we have a great high priest whose name is love